Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling, and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan, and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton, and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging, and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. I just want to welcome you to our first ever podcast. We hope that there are many more of our C3 Thoreau, Camden and Picton, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I'm sitting down here with Pastor Rowan from hey, C3. Everyone. Yeah. And he has over how many years experience as a pastor? I uh, have about, oh, about 30 years experience plus in various forms of pastoral ministry, Jean. 30 years. Mm. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I should state my name is Jeannie. Yeah, this is the first time I've done this. So just... It's very conversational. If you're listening, just sit back and relax. We're just, just relax, guys. I'm stressed chat. because Jeannie yep. has quizzed me. with. I've got a list of questions in front of me, which, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, these are tough questions. Tough questions. I think I might be over-prepared. Maybe. Do you think? Yeah. Maybe. Well, I'm not as prepared as you are. Let's <laughs> just say that, Jeannie. <laughs> so our plan is today, we're just sitting down to discuss the Bible reading yep. that Pastor Rowan has put together for the all the churches yep. that's been going on for the beginning of the year and we'll continue through the rest of the year. Yep, that's the plan. Yeah, and we thought that one of the reasons we would have this podcast is to basically to explain, discuss and to encourage people and to hopefully people will engage uh, with the Bible readings. Absolutely. Yeah. We want to create some, give you some extra tools so extra that you tools. can engage and, and be... Uh, be willing to ask questions of the text. Don't be afraid of asking questions that's when right. you get confused. Yeah. And that's what I like about you, Pastor Rowan, is that you, you're you so communicative, if that's the word, but I feel like I can actually ask questions about the Bible with oh, you. Thanks, and I, there are no pastors that I've met where I feel like I can do that because I always kind of felt like I was getting a little bit in trouble. Oh, no. You know? no there's no <laughs> dumb questions around me. I'm pretty no. dumb myself, so I like to ask dumb questions. Oh, that's good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I'm simple stupid and I've got some simple stupid questions oh, here. No, there's never dumb questions with the Bible. I'd much rather yeah. people ask questions and be willing to... Uh, do the things that challenge them, explore the things that challenge them. That's how yeah. we learn. That's how we grow. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we just go, oh, it's all too hard. Uh, it is, yeah. It's not relevant and then disconnect from it altogether. Yeah. So let's just start. I just want to ask a few questions about the Bible before sure. we actually get into the readings for this week. Yep. What is the Bible? 
what is the Bible? Well, that's, um, that's a big, big, very broad question. The Bible is a, a collection of uh, ancient writings that span a long period of time in, in, in being written and then have been written and edited and changed over the period of time as well. So one of the things we need to realise is it wasn't, it wasn't written by a bunch of people sitting down on the weekend with a pizza and a beer and going, let's just write a story. It, was written it wasn't? Over, no, it wasn't. It was <laughs> written, over, uh, written over a long period of time. So you're talking and thousands of I'm years. I'm talking, yes, yes. It was probably the first parts of the Bible were probably written down somewhere in the vicinity of... Uh, shall we say, 1400 BC, thereabouts. Uh, yeah. And then the yeah. most recent stuff would have been written down about, you know, within the first century AD. So it was probably written, in, written down over a period of 15, 1600 years, something like that. And so it's obviously taken so long to write, but who wrote it? Who wrote like, it? Is it one person's mm. family or No, or it, was, it was a group of, uh, it was written as to tell the story. The Old Testament was written to tell the story of the people of Israel. So it was their understanding of who they were, their national identity and who their God was as they worshipped him and ultimately God's plan through them to bring redemption to the whole world. So that's the Old Testament and then the New Testament was written by, uh, by uh, but largely the apostles that either walked with Jesus, or in the case of the Apostle Paul, um, and possibly the writer to the Hebrews, were closely associated with that time. The Old Testament um, was was written. It's, it's a collection, basically, of ancient scripts, ancient texts, uh, covering a multiple series of genres. There's historical narrative in there. There's uh, biblical. Uh, bi there's there's like poetry. There's uh, song. There's uh, plays, there's, you name it, it's all in there. It's a wide range of... Plays? Yes, there's like the, the Song of Songs is written as a play. Song of, Sol song song of Songs. Songs. That's yeah. a mouthful. Yeah. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon was written as a play. So, well, yeah. That, I for a script writer like yourself. That makes sense. Yes. Uh, yes. And uh, if you haven't yet read the Song of Songs of Song of Solomon, we're not going to get to that today, but it is uh, very interesting. It's an interesting text. Read, yeah, that's so for sure. It is amazing to think about it. So understanding the genre is good. And I think probably... The, and many of the listeners would probably know pretty much what I've said. What a lot of people may not realise is that the collection was put together. So the Old Testament was put together in pretty much its current format, give or, give or take the, the order of the books. But the actual texts themselves weren't finalised until what we call the Second Temple period. So in the time following the, the exile to Babylon, we're talking in the, fifth, say, 400 BC range, they came back from exile and a number of scholars in that time were wanting to tell God's story, the, people, the story of the people of Israel. And so they finalized the text and put them together and added things in here and there and, and amended and adjusted to come up with a cohesive canon, a cohesive story that uh, told about God's interaction with his people and his interaction with them and with the world around them. Yeah. Now, I have to say, I've actually read the Bible you I have. have. I have. I've yes. read it, a well, a couple of times. You're, if you've already read and it a couple of times, you're already ahead of most people. Well, I, uh, yeah, I might be. Most I people. Think. Well, I actually do think that a lot of Christians don't know the Bible. They That's don't read it. It's, it's too scary. It's, um, it's certainly challenging and confronting in many places. And th this is part of the reason why you've got the Bible plan here, so yes. that we do read it. And I have two questions off that. First of all, is why should we read the Bible? But secondly, you see, you said before it was cohesive. Yes. How was it cohesive yeah. after, what did you say, how many thousands over, of years? Over those thousands of years of writing yeah. it, yes. What makes it cohesive? 
Well, the, f uh, the two questions are linked. So let's, let's visit the first question. You know, why should we read the Bible? Well, as Christians, we believe, and I believe not just from a, a not just from a blind faith perspective, but I believe from an historical perspective, the Bible is the account of uh, God's interaction with us. So we discover who God is, His reaction, he, the way He relates to us and to the world, and what He's doing in uh, in the world and through His people, and who Jesus is. We discover that. Uh, first and foremost from the Bible. So really, if you want to know why you should read the Bible, it's because how you find out who God is and, and the person of Jesus. So that's the first thing. Read, uh, read, read it through there. What was your second question? I can't remember. You can't remember no. either. They were linked together. So I think I was it was, thinking, why is it cohesive? Why is it cohesive? Yeah. Simply because of that. Because God, uh, I think it's second. It's in Second Timothy somewhere. I was going to say 3.16, but that's not it. Um, but it, it basically says that, uh, you know, no, no, I think it's not, it might not even mean Second Timothy, but it, it basically said that uh, no prophet wrote down of their own accord. That There was this belief that somehow the Spirit of God was working behind the scenes as they were writing, redacting, editing, adding to the scriptures to come up with what we call the canon, the modern, the modern day Bible, and that the Holy Spirit was inspiring that and using uh, human beings in partnership with him to tell his story. So that is why we should read it. Uh, we hear from God and that's why it's cohesive because God is the ultimate author behind the scenes through the Spirit of God telling his story of interaction with humanity. And that's why it's cohesive. Everything uh, points towards Jesus and Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that is in the scriptures. So that sounds a little bit magical. Almost metaphysical, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, because what I find really strange is that when you do read it, you read from the beginning and themes are continued throughout. Yeah. And when you explain it as the spirit of God, that makes sense that there's something behind it, driving yeah. it. And, and you see that with the prophets and all sorts of things, that the prophecies, they do play out. It's... Uh, and, and actually, a good thing to talk about this is we're going to talk about the breath yes. and this. So yep. it, can you describe the Spirit of God as a breath? Yeah, you can. Very much God so. God so breathed into these people yep. uh, and they wrote these words down. Yep. And uh, we have their stories. It all links up. And now we have this big fat book yep. called the Bible. Yeah, sure. So, so why uh, is God referred to as breath? I think... You could take it back to basically take it back to an ancient understanding, and for for the ancients, they believed that life existed in breath. So uh, it was the life force of whatever being, whether that was Yahweh as the God of Israel or whatever God they worshipped, that that somehow they had this understanding and awareness that if there was no breath in their lungs, they weren't alive. So so God as the source of life for the Hebrews. Uh, the Spirit of God, the Hebrew word for the Spirit of God is ruach, R-U-A-C-H, ruach. ruach. You've got to say ruach, ruach, like a good, like a good Middle Eastern. You got to clear your throat as you say ruach, ruach. You got How's it. That's that right. Sound, sound Hebrew. Yeah. And you can almost get in that the sense of breath. It's actually oh, I can't remember the term for it. We have terms in the language where the word sounds like. Uh, the noise it's making, like moo and meow and all that. It's actually that sort of thing. It's this sense of breath. When we blow like that, it has that um, breathy sound to it. And ruach has that breathy sound to it as well. So that's how the word came about. And it referred to, they would call the spirit of God breath with this awareness that without the life force of the breath of God, nothing existed. So we can go back to, we're going to look at uh, Genesis 1, but God breathed into Adam and he became a life giving a, 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 life, a living being. So that, that's where this concept of the Spirit of God as breath comes from. 
I have a lot to say about that, and I'm actually just gobsmacked at this moment. You see, I'm very new to this whole podcast oh, thing. Great, the problem is when when I sit down with Pastor Ron, which I do every Monday, I, we can talk about a lot of things, and I can go off and off and off <laughs> go and off. On. And off hey, and we can off. have a conversation. So let me come back to what we're actually doing yeah, today, sure. rather than what my brain was thinking then. <laughs> so it gets a bit random, but that's a good segue, I suppose, into Genesis one. But that's a good segue, I suppose, into Genesis 1, sure. which is uh, one of the readings for this week. And I feel... Yeah, we should say we, the, the intention will be largely to stick it with this podcast to yes. stick to having some conversation around, largely around those 10 chapters a week that we're looking at. Yes, that yeah. is the point. Discuss what we are reading. Yeah. Yes. See, he needs... He, um, he reminds me of what I'm actually doing Oh, no, I, I can go off on tangents. Yeah. Too, <laughs> yeah. We'll be here all day if we do yeah. that. So I do just want to mention, um, before we do start fully on this, the Bible is a hard read. And what I noticed is when um, I was given Bibles out you know, as a teenager, I was often given the um, New Testament with, uh, with Psalms and Proverbs. And when you read those books, it's a very encouraging sort of read. And it's about this amazing Christ Messiah who comes and he says all these amazing things, does all these amazing miracles. Yep. And it feels all Nice. There's not any violence particularly <laughs> other than the resurrection, the other crucifixion. The crucifixion. That's right. But here in the Bible plan, you haven't asked us to just read the New no. Testament. You've asked us to go back yep. to the beginning and read the Old Testament, which most people I have spoken to find it very, very yeah. difficult yep. uh, to read. And some Christians may even try to sort of deny that they believe in mm. the God that mm. is in Old Testament, yeah, sure. uh, they see that, that there's a difference. I don't actually think there is because I've read the whole thing. But when you read much of the Old Testament, it it can make you sort of question the whole thing. Like, why why am I even here? Why, why do I believe this? Sure. W- you know? Why do I believe it? Because it's so confronting? It's is so confronting, right. yes. Sure. And in Genesis 1, I think we have the first sentence, which is perhaps one of the most divisive sentences in the entire book. And this is how it starts off. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, right there, you're going to get half the people walking out of the building sure. and half the people, you know, believing that very much. And I should also state that we're not discussing this um, the literal aspect of this. We're actually sure. discussing the themes uh, that are presented in yeah. each text. So we're just going to see what is God telling us in in chapter 1, Genesis 1, uh, in the beginning God created. Yep. Gotcha. What, I, what was I really struck with this, uh, set with me this time is because I've read it a lot. You know, it says the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep. And let there be light. And we, you know, most of us will know these stories. Uh, but then there's this in verse six, it says, then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the I'm just reaching for my page. I have a paper Bible. That's hard to believe, isn't it? waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens and God called it sky but in actually in my bible that I, the other one that I'm reading it actually calls this a firmament firmament, firmament yep. I can't even say it firmament yep and so what I, I didn't notice before was that there's already a separation between 
heaven sure. and earth. Yep. And I also didn't notice that God doesn't exist or doesn't live with Adam and Eve on earth. He seems to come down and visit. Sure. So he seems to live in this space, this heavenly space. Yep. So while I've always read the story that God is having this great time in relationship with Adam and Eve, I didn't notice the separation. Great. Good thought, I didn't Jeannie. notice there was a space between us and God. Right. Did you see what I was Yes, saying? I do. Uh, you, yeah. you, you'd think about, because we hear a lot of talk about God wanting to be with his people and yes. all that sort of stuff. And yet, and the initial way that the story is depicted, there is a separation. Is that right? There is, is a separation. Thought. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where do you have any, Yeah, where does that come yeah. What does that mean? Good, good thought. Well, the first thing I want to reiterate just before we get into it, um, because I know that we'll have all different perspectives when it comes to people listening to this. Uh, the first thing I want to say is you're absolutely right. The concept of Genesis 1, particularly Genesis 1, 2 and 3, can be quite divisive. It can be quite a challenging thing with very fierce perspectives from um, all realms of Christian church. Uh, I've changed my view on, on a lot of this stuff over more recent years. I held to a very strong literalist view. Um, I don't hold necessarily of reasons why I don't hold to a literalist view. In fact, some of the perspectives I have about this now, I would have called myself a heretic oh, <laughs> some dear. time don't ago. Say that word. So yeah. I would have thought, oh, I'd <laughs> lost the plot. I'm much more comfortable now with the nuance of Scripture and understanding some of the, the writings of Scripture um, and, and why... I need to be careful that I'm not trying to interpret them through a 21st century lens. I'm trying to, not trying to put a 21st century lens over the scripture and make sense of it. When I don't think that the, question, the, the questions we're asking the text to say aren't the questions that were being asked by the writers. Uh, so to say all that, to say, look, there are very godly, very conscientious people who will have a different perspective about how to read uh, Genesis 1 for instance, than I currently do. And that's totally fine. And I, I don't believe that um, we should lose sleep over that. And we shouldn't necessarily part company over that. Uh, but I'm here to tell you, you know, as a pastor, what I think and, and why I believe certain things about this. So when it comes to, uh, I guess when you, your question was, you know, how does this work, this separation and what is the firmament? I guess there's two questions in there a little bit, is there? Like, is oh, there's probably many probably questions. Probably many more. Okay. Yeah. Well, what should we tackle first, Jim? <laughs> the separation or the firmament? Let's go there for starters. The separation. The separation. The okay. Yeah. See, I think that um, we, we need to realise that the scriptures were written um, as by, by, in, by fallible human beings who were in relationship with their God and God was willingly limiting himself into uh, a partnership arrangement with human beings. The scripture from the beginning paints this picture, even in Genesis 1 and 2, it paints this picture that God's intention is that he will partner with humanity. He doesn't need to. He is above all, through all, in all. Colossians 1 tells us God, through Jesus all things were made. Nothing was made that hasn't been made through Jesus. He's above all. He's, he's over all. And yet this amazing, overarching, all-powerful God has willingly limited himself to work with and partner with frail humanity. Why is that important? Because what that means is that God is willing to tell his story through the limitations of human understanding and knowledge and culture and value at that particular time. So, so that could actually explain why some of the things that confront us in the Old Testament might challenge us. It's because we are trying to impose a, a, an enlightened 21st century view upon those things when we look at some of the ethics and morality of the Old Testament, we think, how can that be, how can that be God? 
And I think the answer is God was limiting himself to work within the culture and the understanding of those people at that time. So are you saying that by me in 2023 reading the Bible, I am viewing it through the world around me and that's an incorrect way to read the Bible? Should I be considering the times that it was You've got it, it existed in? Absolutely. I can't think who the preacher is now, well-known well known scholar. I can't think. He says, we need to remember that the Bible was written for you, not to you. For me, not to me. What's the difference? <laughs> what do you think the difference is? <laughs> it was written for me, not to me. Well, I, and that's a really good point because I feel like all my life I have written, I've read the Bible as if it is directly to me, yes. as if I should be able to pick up a verse and it says, and I'll put, put my finger down or, you know, choose a verse randomly and that verse should be speaking absolutely yeah. to me and should affect my day. Uh, but when you say for me, that implies that I should be using my intellect and my reasoning Come on, Jean, to read great. it. <laughs> but I, I mean, sometimes I would, I want it to be a bit like astrology in that yes, sense it, that like it, it affects me. And, and I don't want to limit God and say that God can't do that. I've experienced that in my life. You know, um, What I would say is that as we mature in our faith, we should be wanting to develop beyond that sense of relying upon God to somehow give us a magic word. I don't think, I think once again, just like I said, God will work with us at any capacity. I think he will work with us in our limited knowledge and understanding. But as, a, as Christians, as a pastor, I would be encouraging Christians to embrace the nuance of it a little bit more and understand and move from just this sense that God is speaking directly to me with, where eventually that, that concept alone can become dangerous because we can be trying to impose 21st century ideas and trying to have this sense that uh, that's the way the scriptures are intended to work. Whereas an understanding that God was writing for us through telling, he was telling his story through the limitations of uh, people from 1500, 2000, two and a half thousand years ago is actually, to me, that makes it richer and more inspiring rather than going, oh, this doesn't make any sense. I can go, that's amazing to me that God is telling his story through a people who lived in, in the land of Canaan, 1400 BC, and he's able to limit himself and still willingly tell the divine story of his interaction with humanity and what that means to me through the limitations of a people who were you know, going into a promised land. And really, I mean, by today's standards, the conquering of Canaan by Joshua and the Israelites is it's abhorrent, really. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll probably deal <laughs> yes, with that when we get is. to it. But yeah. God still was able to tell his story through that. That's quite remarkable to me. So... Are you saying I should read it more like, I guess, like an onion, you know, peeling layers. off layers and layers and that it's rather, it's not, I shouldn't just read it for face value. I should ask questions and I should believe that there is something to be discovered within Absolutely. the text. Mining deep into the text. Mining. The, the Hebrew uh, rabbis teach about different levels. I don't have them in front of me right now. Different levels of understanding of the scriptures and this four Hebrew words for it. We might be able to put it in the show notes at some point. Four different Hebrew, I think it's four or five different levels of text. Um, so the first is the apparent meaning of the text. The next, they go deeper and they, they look at, say, the New Testament. They'll read a scripture and it'll be quoting an Old Testament scripture. And they want you to dig back and actually not just look at the Old Testament, but then dig beyond that into the, the chapter or the context of the Old Testament. Very often, the New Testament writers will quote an Old Testament passage not just or an Old Testament verse, not just for you just to go, oh, that verse is nice, but actually want you to go deeper and read the context of the Old Testament and buried in that story will be a, a deeper level of understanding of what they were trying to say in the New Testament. And I should also state as well that it isn't 
written for people of English speaking Correct. countries. Absolutely. So the so you've text, got a cultural difference. Yeah, you have a cultural difference in the text. And often we can be reading poetry. We don't realize it's poetry. Good we point. read it uh, as a statement, I yes. suppose, but rather it's meant to be uh, read as something non literal yep. and something that's designed to ask questions within ourselves. Yep. Like it, so there is some confronting things written as poetry. Some of the things that David wishes upon his enemies, incredibly confronting. Yeah. Like I couldn't even share them That's here without right. a trigger warning because trigger. they're <laughs> incredibly yeah. confronting. But when we understand it's poetry, that there is a deep emotion attached to that, it, it will help us to, to go identify with that and go, I might not say that, but I understand the pain of that, or whatever it might be. Yes, the pain and the God's breath in those in the poetry in, in David's um, writings i think you can really feel it there yes that our humanity the way he expresses our humanity and our pain and our sorrow and i can see when i think of some of those verses what you said before god is partnering with us i can see how in those moments god is speaking to to our deeper selves yes for sure have i gone on a segue i think i might kind of have gone off on a segue. i think i took you there yes this is the problem where were we where were we let's we were discussing that whole concept of of um the firmament and then the Oh, we're we, still on Genesis one. We're still on Genesis <laughs> one. So let's go back. To, let's go back to the firmament because we, yes. we we kind of addressed the the you know the literal tension that exists between understanding scripture and all of that sort of stuff and realizing God limits Himself and partners with us. So a good segue back to the firmament might be to understand that when God is telling His story in Genesis one about creation, He is doing it within the level of understanding and what we would call ancient cosmology. So cosmology even today is the study of the cosmos, the study of the way things were believed to be. And so, what so are you saying this is their style of science? Yes, exactly. Well, the yeah, science as they knew it. As they knew it. So okay. what we need to realise, and this is probably where I may upset some people, because I certainly held this view, is that, is that, in the part, uh, that we would read Genesis 1, the creation account, for instance, as a science textbook. And we would be looking for scientific evidence to validate the account of Genesis chapter one. And so, you know, a young earth creation view has that. So coming, we're going to take it literally and exactly what it says on the page is what we need to prove scientifically. And any, any science that seems to counteract that must be wrong or heretic or, or of the devil even. Of the devil. Of the oh devil dear. even. I mean, so whereas I think what I've realized in more recent times is that while that's still possible, I, I don't dismiss the fact that a divine God could, could uh, still weave in through the limitations of human being actual scientific truth. I'm not dismissing that's possible. I just don't, th- I'm less inclined to think that's actually what's going on than I used to. So I'm not limiting God. He could do that. And there's probably examples you would find in some of the ancient writings of the book of Job, uh, where you would see things written in the text that science would now prove about the universe and things that they wouldn't have possibly known mm-hmm. at that time. So I'm not saying that's um, that's uh, impossible. I just say that I don't think that's necessarily the main point. So when it comes back to Genesis 1, we need to understand a little bit about ancient cosmology, the way that their limited understanding, their limited scientific knowledge, what they thought of across the what we call the ancient Near East. So Israel, the people of God, lived in what is part of the ancient Near East culture, the, the, the Bronze Age culture that probably from 2000 BC through to uh, 500 BC, that well, through to 1000 BC is bronze, and then it moves into the Iron Age. But in that period of time, a millennium or two before Christ, 
This is the culture that the ancient Old Testament is written in. And in that time, they had a, a view of cosmology, which I like to call it the snow globe, snow globe mentality. Yes, okay. So if you think of a snow globe, you've got your little, uh, you know, you've yep. got your little houses or whatever yep. it is and you shake it up. And Give all it a good snow. shake. Yep. Okay, and, it, and it's a dome over the top. That's actually quite similar to what ancient cosmology looked like. They actually believed that the earth was flat. Um, they believed it was a, a disc and that it actually had the it had pillars that went down below the disc into the into the the ocean so they didn't have a sense that we do now we understand that the oceans are, have ground underneath them all the way to the core of our earth they didn't see it that way they saw that the ocean was chaotic and that the earth the the land actually existed on the ocean and somehow there were pillars going down into the ocean just to hold the whole disc um, steady. If you just Google ancient cosmology diagram or ancient biblical cosmology diagram, you can Google it, you'll see what I'm talking about. And then over that was a dome. The dome. Is a that dome. the firmament? That's the firmament. They actually, it comes from a word meaning um, the firmament actually comes, whatever the Hebrew word, it actually means firm. It actually comes from that whole concept that there was some kind of protective dome over the earth. And that there was a sense Is this that the ozone layer? Not, no. no. See, now you're asking <laughs> okay. 21st now century questions. Now I'm being questions. too scientific. Now you become, yes. see, I, I love my science too. But no, if we, if we, we've got to park everything we know about 21st century science. We've got to, this is a good example of what we have to do in Scripture all the time. We know what we know, but they didn't know that. So we've got to no. put that aside and go, what did they know? And then it'll start to come to life. So they didn't know that. So the firmament story says that God separated the waters above from the waters beneath. Now, they had this concept that there's water, they're on land, there's waters around them, the waters are chaotic. So you, it's good to know the waters are chaotic. We know that, the oceans are chaotic. Yes. Go back pre-shipbuilding days, and there was, no wonder they thought there were ancient sea monsters. People would, you didn't go into the water. You were limited to land. You wouldn't go very far into the sea. It's dangerous. And so that often, that narrative of waters being dangerous often comes out in scripture, the chaotic waters. Genesis 1, the spirit of God is hovering over the deep waters. Yes. Okay. He let dry land appear. So you get that coming out of the, the chaotic waters into a dry land. Then they have this concept of a firmament separating the waters above from the waters below. Now put yourself into, go back two and a half thousand years. You're an Israelite in the desert in Mount, uh, on, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And during the daytime, you look up in the sky. Just imagine you're in the middle of the desert. What do you see? You see a dome of blue. That's correct. From one yeah. horizon to Couple another, clouds. Yep. as far as you can see. Above the clouds, you see a dome of blue. Now, what, I, what did that say when I say, oh, I'm telling you that the ancient writings say God separated the waters above from the waters of the earth. What do you think though, that sky is to them? Well, this is why I was asking you. I'm not here to answer <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah. You're not rain. It doesn't says it, it says it hasn't rained yet. It hasn't rained so yet. So it's atmosphere i don't know so they see blue up there they think blue is ocean they think blue is water so they oh actually have goodness. a concept that there is water up there and there is water down there and there's something separating the water up there from the water down here what is that they call the firmament sky because they knew something about that they knew that there were birds flying around up there and that somehow there's this there's this separation between the water they see up there and the water they see down here. That is the sky. And that and is the place that separates up there from down here. And so are you saying that this is their heaven? Is this water? Water so world? Is this a water world? Yeah. No. So that 
then we've got to, then we've got to park that. What do you see at night time when you look up? Well, in yeah. The sky? Well, where did the water go then? Uh, so, okay, so I, I don't have the answer for that. That's a good question for someone to look yeah. up. Where, where did the water go during the night time? Because they would have had to, they would have had this to wrestle with that. This is too much. My head I've is never, spinning. I've never had yeah. to think about that. Never thought about that question. That's a good one to ask ChatGPT. What do they believe about where the water went during the night? But at night, just part yeah. of the idea of where the water went at night. What do they see in the sky? Stars. Stars. And what else? On well, the day they see sun, well, moon, planets, stars. But they don't know their planets. They don't know their planets. What do they think they are? I don't know. Twinkling dots of dust? No, that's probably too scientific. Bur flying, bur burning Angels? gas balls? Angels. Angels. Heavens. So they see that what they see up there is a realm that they can never hope to get to. And they see that these beings, they saw the stars as beings. And you'll see this play out throughout the scripture. The sun, moon, the sun, moon and stars bow down and, and it doesn't make sense to us. And you see these concepts. But to them, the stars were divine beings that existed in a different realm they could never hope to reach. No matter how hard they, they had this sense that the divine realm was up there somewhere. So should I be thinking about this as in that is a known separation to them. Yes, there is a, a separation, separation between us on the earth and yep. the stars above. Yep. So if how do you get there? How do you get there? Yeah. So well, I think they're aware. It's not in this I text. Thi I think all of them are aware that they can't get there. They can't get there. I think um, in one form or another. So let's take ancient Greek mythology. So we're not dealing with, with dealing with thousand years after this was you know, this was, uh, you know, written in 1400 BC or thereabouts, but a thousand years later, ancient Greek mythology um, around the classical age, they had a sense that uh, the gods lived on Mount Olympus. Now, you'll see, this in, you'll see this in all ancient cultures. You can go to Thailand today, you'll see, you'll see temples on the top of hills. The reason is this is this divine, there's this understanding, this almost innate awareness within human beings that the divine is above us, is out of our reach. And so what we need to do is try to, humans want to reach up to that. So they will build their temples on the top of mountains. They will, um, uh, they, they build a tower of Babel in Genesis 11, trying to reach up to the heavens. This is a sense of, we want to be like the divine. We want to go up there. We want to reach that. And so there is this understanding that there is a deep separation between the gods or God and humanity. And godly power, I suppose. And godly power and the power, the absolute power that goes with that. Yes. So what is it about humans, and I'm not really wanting you to ask that, to answer this, it's just a question. What is it about humans that we feel like we have to reach out beyond ourselves, that there's something, there's something bigger out there, there's something yeah. above that we have to I, I, aspire to, I suppose? I, I guess I think it's probably to say that it's just been innately built into us. I mean, this is a very simplistic faith answer, but I, I think that's something that God has sown. Uh, Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in the hearts of Humans, I think there's a sense in which there's something innately in our wiring, the way God has made us and fashioned us to want and desire more, to want to grow, to want to learn, to want to aspire to wisdom. That's actually a wisdom question and the theme of wisdom throughout scripture comes up time and time again. It was what Adam and Eve thought when they thought they would get wisdom when they ate from the tree in Genesis 3. So I think it's built into our psyche and our DNA by the creator himself to create this desire for us to want to reach to reach aspire okay but that can be done in the right way or the wrong way i think that's a biblical story i think the, the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is is one way god saying will you trust me to grow in wisdom or will you try and figure that out and take wisdom for yourself so that's moving into genesis 3 yep. but um, i think that story that theme of wisdom and asp aspiration is is it's not a bad thing it's a good thing to want to grow and learn it's just that 
God would say, do you trust me to train you and teach you rather than take matters into your own hands? Because when you do, human history tells us that when humans try to define right and wrong and good and bad, we usually get it wrong. Yes, we yeah. know that. And I think from the very first sentence, he's asking us, do we want to trust him? Yeah. Do we believe uh, that God created? Yep. Do we have faith? Uh, faith exists outside of our human world. Yep. Uh, it's the unseen. So in the beginning, God created. Then he breathed life into Adam. Yep. These are things that you, you have to take a step of faith to believe. Yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I, I think I can produce reasonable evidence to make my faith uh, common sense. I can actually show for myself, I, can, I believe it takes less faith to believe that there wasn't a creator than that there was, but ultimately still is still a step of faith. Still a step God of has never faith. limited that. Genesis 1 does not make that first verse you read. God isn't under any desire to prove his existence. It's just expected that right from the very first verse of the Bible, it's just an accept thing that God uh, God existed. God and he and, created. And so we have our human existence, yet there is this uh, other world uh, beyond us above, um, a faith world. Yep. So, oh, I don't know where I was going with that. It was a That's, good thought. But you had a good thought there? I did. I actually did. And it was, it's part of the whole story. It's that we do, we have to have faith. But we have to recognise that it is not of ourselves. It's not in ourselves or the literal world that we can yeah. see. It's something otherworldly, yep. something out there that we can't necessarily prove. Yep. And yep. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, well, I, should say correct. I yeah. agree. I you agree. agree? Okay. I agree that there is ultimately a sense of faith that comes into this that's beyond, beyond provable science. And science will tell you that, you know, don't accept anything that's not provable. But there are lots of things within science that aren't provable. And there's a fine line between the physical and the metaphysical. Yeah. Between but science we, and philosophy. But in humans, we can exist like that pretty well. You know, we'll say, Absolutely. oh, I've got a really good feeling about that. Yeah. Or we do it all I, the time intuitively. Yeah. yeah, intuitively. Or yeah. we're looking for signs yeah. in the world around yeah. us. Even those of us that would say we, we stick to empirical science, in reality, I don't think many of us do. I think many of us no, still operate in the realm of faith. No, I mean, because if you're trusting in your gut and, you know, it could just be a bad lunch that you had. This That's is exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got a feeling down yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All the old pizza dreamers, they yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. And I just and I, I noticed that the chapter that you had um, in cor corresponding to this, I suppose, is Matthew three. Sure. Now we're talking about the firmament and yep. the heavens here and kingdoms, I suppose. Mm -hmm. No. No, we didn't actually mention that. That's in my mind. Uh, John the Baptist, he comes to uh, earth yep. and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Yep. Um, is the kingdom of God on this earth uh, okay. or out of the earth? I think that does correspond with what you said about Genesis 1. And I don't know that we really, I don't know I really addressed that whole concept of if there's separation What's the intention? Because there's this innate sense of separation. The scripture's story is that God does not want to remain aloof from... The creator wants to interact with his creation. And by when I say his there, we use, 
you know, God is non-gendered. We use the term his or father because it is a, uh, you know, it carries with it a cultural baggage, but God is not a man. He, he, he is, we say he, but oh, God, sorry, 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 sorry. What? <laughs> well, what? Jesus I've always is gendered. thought father, father, yes, father. Yeah, yes, but that does not uh, mean that, that, that Yahweh, the, the, the God of heaven, the creator is a man. Uh, Jesus is a man because he's a bi- Jesus came as a biological male, uh, but the crea- all masculinity and femininity exists within the Creator. God, and there is times when the scriptures where God where God is referred to in feminine terms. Uh, Jesus even says how, Jesus even refers to feminine terms when he says, oh, "Jerusalem, how long to gather you as a <laughs> hen gathers the chick the, their yes. chicks." So there's femininity and masculinity. In the God, and we'll no doubt come back to this multiple times in the podcast because I'm well aware that this can be a trigger for people, even just that whole sense of if you've had a, especially ladies have had a negative um, masculine or male figure in your world. I realize that that can set off uh, challenges or negative men and women who've had negative relationships with their father, that concept that God is father. So when we say that, I think we need to put that back in its historical context as well and realize that there is an historical understanding of patriarchy and family and that that mentality was that not that the, that the father would be abusive, which so, sadly so often did happen and still happens, but rather that, that the father uh, w- was supposed to be a, a provider and a protector and, and care for the family and the household. And that's the fatherly attribute of God that, that God is wanting to talk about there. And you said before he... Uh he speaks of, uh, he uses our times, I suppose. And so we know that the cultures back then were very patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Do you think God is just using the term father because that is what they knew at that time? I, th- I think so. Um, I think so. I- I'm not sure what that implies and, and, and bring that into the 21st century. And there's a whole move away from taking, um, you know, removing any gender from the nature of God or, 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 any kind of removing any sense of gender from the scriptures. And there's an argument about what, what should we do? Some of the more, you know, more recent translations have removed God created man and made it God created humans. And I'm totally in favor with that because I think that is a, a, uh, an understanding that was limited by language at the time when, when it was written, uh, not just when it was written, but even when it was translated into English in the last few hundred years. So I'm in favor of more gender neutral texts that are more inclusive because in, in those cases, when it might say man or mankind, that language is kind of old school now. But we we knew back then they knew when they said man, it meant men and men and women. So um, I think we should now adjust our scriptures, the language, to suit the understanding that we have at the time. Are you just are you saying you can just change words of the Bible? Wow. Well, that's a good question. I think we should be digging deep into what was so when it says God created man. What was it really meaning? Did God create? Well, I've always just thought it as as both men and women, man, human, mankind. So Genesis one, God created man in His own image, male and female. He male and female. He created them. So there's definitely a sense of both being created in the image of God. There. So you could say God created mankind. Personally, I would use God created humankind because. Even though I'm comfortable with mankind, I'm, I'm aware that that might be limiting for people who are just trying to figure out faith. So I'm willing to change my language. It doesn't water down what I believe or whatever. I'm willing to change my language to, to meet people where they're at. And, and I try to use human rather than man. What that means for the implications of whether we should remove the father, the, the terminology of father from the creator God, I'm a bit more dubious about that. There is some valid reasons why some people are quite strong about it, such as 
it carries with it negative connotations. My concern with removing father or changing it to father, mother or something else is that there are attributes of that culture that God was using about fatherhood and the way a father was supposed to lead a family, that if we just extract that, we miss something about who God is. So I'd rather try to teach, like we're doing now, teach the understanding culturally of what fatherhood meant, rather than just go, oh, that's triggering, dismiss it. We'll miss something of the nature of God if we just mm. And didn't, it. when Jesus, when he called out Abba, is that yes. the word? Is, does, doesn't that not necessarily mean father? It means daddy? Yes, it means It's daddy. a different version. It's, it's a more intimate, direct term that, that the Hebrew people at the time would never have dreamt of using of God. No, they didn't. No. Yeah. And Jesus was trying to illustrate that there was a level of intimacy available with daddy, God, that, that they had no concept of. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason Abba means daddy is the same reason that we use the word dad. Um, it's the, these mum and dad terms are some of the earliest syllable sounds that come out of our mouth. Dad, 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 Abba, Abba. And that's where it came from. So it's, it's just some of the earliest words. And obviously the first words that children will speak, easiest words to speak, the parents want them to identify with them. So that's where those mum, 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 dad, dad, dad come from. Abba, abba, abba. So the first things out of our mouth should be praise of God. Dad, 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 dad. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you could argue oh, that no. that's maybe what, part of what God's trying to do there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we kind of, yeah, so Matthew 3, so this concept of the separation. I there. feel like we need to control ourselves. We do, we're going like off we're on going a tangent. <laughs> yeah. So let's go back to Matthew this 3. This is the problem we could talk about we a could. lot. All right, Matthew so let's talk, 3. Let's talk Matthew yep. 3. So there's this separation, but the story of the Bible is that God has, God is not happy with the separation. His intention is always that there would be a unification. When God, the story of Genesis says, yes, the heavens are up there, but then God created a place. And he put a garden in the middle of this place. This place was called Eden. He put a garden in the middle of this place. And the picture is not, it's actually a mountaintop. So they had an understanding. The ancient Hebrews believed that Eden was on a mountaintop and these rivers would flow down that from this mountaintop. blows my mind. I was a valley in my mind. Uh, you're always yeah. thinking valley. You know, valley ancient, yeah. But that's, not, the, that's not what they thought. Yeah, so where are the, there rivers, the rivers on are the flowing out of from a place. So oh, how do rivers okay. flow out from a place if it's not a high place? Okay, okay. So you get yeah. the cosmology straight away. So <laughs> yes. it has to be on a mountain if you've got rivers flowing out from it. So there's this mountaintop, and that is for the same reason that Mount Olympus exists and all these others, this concept that this is the realm of the gods. And God placed, he came down on that mountaintop and he placed humans in that garden on that mountaintop. And he said, from here, this is the touchdown point of heaven and earth. This is the unification point. It's like an overlapping. This is a separation, but then God joins them together on, in Eden in this beautiful place of paradise. And then he says to Adam and Eve, I want you to go out and make the rest of the world look like this. Your, your mandate, I want to partner with you and your job is to rule over the birds in the air, the fish in the sea, to have dominion, not to control, but have dominion to bring about order and beauty and God's kingdom values across the whole planet. That's the biblical mandate. So when we so get most to, people will just stop at the word dominion there. They won't get that's to that's right because once again that's a triggering word. It's a trigger. It's a tricky word. Yeah, it's a tricky word, yeah. and we need to understand. And we won't go into it in depth, but it's not dominion in the sense of um, absolute control, abusive control. It's it's a sense of dominion that brings responsibility over the earth. That you are, we are responsible responsible as humans to make the earth look like heaven, and that has implications for uh, for human. Treating of human, treating of animals, treating of the ecology, uh, which is a confronting one for a lot of Christians. I think, well, God's going to rule, destroy the world. No, I don't believe that we should be treating it that way. We, we, we should have 
we should have dominion, meaning treat the, treat the ecology and the world well. So that is make the rest of the earth look like, um, look like it does in Eden. Of course, humans failed at that and have continued to fail at that. So we get moving to Genesis 3. And I assume what you're saying in Genesis 3 is like John the Baptist comes along. And Matthew 3, sorry. Matthew 3, yeah. sorry. Matthew 3. Yeah, correct. And John the, John the Baptist came along and he said, um, when the whole, what, what did he say? The kingdom, what was Repent it? for the, Repent the, for kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, of heaven is, here. is here. This picture is, this is the time when God's kingdom is touching down. God did not want to stay aloof, but humans have continually chosen the wrong path. God is about through Jesus, about to bring about the restoration of all things and complete this unity. And so John the Baptist shows up as the precursor to Jesus and said, the kingdom of heaven is right here, guys. It's like he's referring to Jesus. Repent, get ready. The kingdom of heaven is coming. There is a unification coming to the earth. And, and he'll say things like, uh, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he's talking about Jesus. When he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And... I guess you, you know you were wanting to know a bit, a yeah, bit about we'll that. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. I yeah, just wanted sure. to state that um, when you said that we were going, we're, so humans were meant to make the world look like it was in Eden. Yet here, John the Baptist enters into a very different time. There's been, you know, wars. Yep, the opposite of that. It's completely the opposite. There's millions of people. There's death everywhere. There's um, people very separated from the original relationship with God, and. Why now? Why does he come at this time? We've already in the because we've skipped. We've gone from Genesis one right to Matthew. We've skipped the entire skipped, Old skipped Testament in this yep, point. That's right. Uh, but John the Baptist comes into a world that looks nothing like Genesis yep. one. Yet here he comes and he is the precursor for Jesus. So is he actually saying John the Baptist? Is he saying that that separation that God wants to uh, to Fix the break that's been made in sin. He wants heaven to come to earth. Yes. Is that what he said? Repent for the kingdom of heaven yes. is here. Yep. It's what were you going to say something then? Did no, I, no, no, keep going. Yeah, no. I, I just I was really struck this time reading it how different the worlds were and how sure. far we had fallen and how our humanity. Um, We'd made the choice in, in Genesis to live a life separate from God. We had chosen ourselves over God, over God's want for us. And here we're seeing this world uh, that is the result of our choices. Of our choices. Of yep. our choices, yeah. And God could have just let it continue on, but he's, he's sending someone. So you're now saying we had Genesis 1, now we've got a new beginning or a new change or something's going to happen. say the fulfilment. Uh, Hebrews 1 says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, in the fullness of time, to bring about the kingdom. The story is tracking towards Jesus. There's this sense throughout the Old Testament that something's broken, something needs to be fixed. And there's this hope and dream that God would do something through a human being that would put the world right. It became known as the Messiah. So skipping through the Old Testament in 30 seconds, it became known as the Messiah that they were, they were waiting for this one who would put right everything in the world that wasn't. That would be the fulfilment of God's plan. To bridge the gap. To bridge the gap. To bridge cross that gap. The firmament. To cross the firmament, if you like. Yes, to bridge that gap and reinstate or complete God's original intention that humans would partner with him to bring heaven to earth. And the picture right at the end of Revelation 21 is the reunification, a new heavens and a new earth coming down, 
a re- complete well, now you're skipping to the end. I'm now skipping. I can't keep up. So this is okay. that picture. So th- th- yeah. that's God's intention to put it all together, to bring all things together under Christ. It says in Colossians, that was always God's intention, and he u- and he uses Jesus to do that. So Jesus is the uh, is the kingdom coming to earth. He is the he's the uh, Paul refers to him as the last Adam. There was the first Adam. It was actually implies. There were lots of Adams along the way. There were lots of people who looked like they could do it. But once we have Jesus, we actually have Jesus as the last one. There's no need for any more Adams because Jesus fulfills what Adam was originally supposed to fulfill. The dominion and the rule of God's kingdom on this earth. Um, Did I go off on a tangent uh, there? No, I'm, I, there is so much going on with this. I, I love that you said we need to read more because it's really confusing. <laughs> and it's, it is confusing. It's so confusing. And I just, how do you even understand this? You, if a person is listening to this for the first time, sure. they're just going to say, what the heck are you talking yeah. about? But please note, we have skipped thousands of years. Yes. Many, many, you know, yep. years, lots of stories in between. But I think what... I got the point was that there was that God is trying to join us together that there is this he's desiring us to come close to him. Absolutely. You took okay. it, put it in a nutshell, Jeannie. That's, oh, a nutshell. Well done. That's oh, a really no. good way to ask that question to no. to address what I said because yes there was complexity in what I said and not expecting that and I realized for some people that story alone might be that I've shared there over the last few minutes might be confusing or scary. Uh, all, all seem like it's in the too hard basket. But what you just said, that if you can remember that the story of the Bible is about God's desire to dwell with human beings and partner with human beings and be in an intimate relationship with human beings. The God of the Bible is not aloof and distant. His desire is to come close. The creator wants to be with his creation. And that is God's plan of, of fixing the things that we have chosen, the things that we have done wrong, which separate us from God, and he never gives up on us. He has a plan to reunite his relationship with humans and that humans might truly fulfill that ultimate plan of ruling and reigning as his partners on this earth. And so should I think that the Bible is then a series of examples of, and characters showing that? Like it, there are all these stories and they all point to this. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yes, or like, um, yes. Usually, in the case of most stories, with a failure. You get this sense... A failure oh, mate, or a father? Is what you said? Failure, failure. Like failure. they tried and they failed. So you get this, yes. you'll get this hint of Solomon and, oh, maybe he's the one. Because, yeah. you know, it's, it uses the Eden language. It says in Solomon's day, there's prosperity and it wasn't just blessing his nation. It was blessing the nations around them. And there's lots of Eden language. Everyone was living under their own fig tree, all kinds of Eden language. They read this and thinking, this is it. Solomon's the one. He's the fulfillment. He's the last Adam. But then Solomon had many wives and Solomon multiplied horses to himself and Solomon was selfish and Solomon was in slavery and suddenly you realise, wow, this wasn't the real fulfillment of Eden. It was a picture. It looked a little bit like it, but it still wasn't right. And full disclosure here, when I was growing up in Sunday school, I would hear about these stories, these characters, and I always thought they were meant to be, I, w- I was meant to revere them. Mm. But as I read it now, I, I realise they actually exist more as examples of what not, not to, to be. Do. They're deeply flawed. Deeply we, we, flawed characters. We, so we take it a character study, we can look at it and go, what we shouldn't be, like you said, what not to be. Uh, 
but deeper than just a, don't just do a character study. Realize that those examples are telling a story in themselves. They're telling a story that there's this sense of no matter how good humans try to be, we're incapable of being what we're capable of, what we should be capable of because of sin. No matter how good we are, no matter how good things look, we keep coming up short of being able to fulfill the Genesis 1 mandate of bringing God's kingdom to earth. We, there should be something in those stories that makes us desire more. We need someone to do this for us. And that person is Jesus. Someone to save us. Someone to... All of the above. Breathe life into yes. us. Someone to uh, give us direction. Yes, all of those saying? three and more. Okay. We need someone who so, would be that last Adam and do that and then enable us to live that way too. So you, And this is in Matthew 3. Uh, are you talking about when John the Baptist says um, that somebody... Where is the verse? It's right here in front of me. Oh, no, it's not. But I'll just remember it, yep, hopefully. It. Uh, he says someone's going to bring the... Someone better than me, he's going to bless you with the Holy Spirit. Is that what he says? He, he says, one is coming after me who is greater than me and whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy baptize Spirit. Baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I should remember that. That's okay, so Bible the moment we hear baptism in the Holy Spirit, yeah. it's probably what I was thinking at the time when I put this Bible passage together, is it should link us back to Genesis 1. The Spirit of God was hovering over the chaos. The chaos. Okay. And brought about order and creation that that the breath of God, the Ruach of God, or in the New Testament, the, the Greek word, the Hebrew word is Ruach. The New Testament's word is pneuma, which from which we get pneumatic drill or a pneum, you know, something that's air pressured. So it's, that's the Greek language that, for the Holy Spirit. But um, so in that context, he is saying, you need a new creation. And the one who's coming after me, Jesus, he will baptize you. He will saturate you. He will fill you with that new creation force. The Spirit of God will hover over you, will saturate you. And you should be thinking Genesis 1, new creation. You should be thinking out of the chaos God brought order in Genesis 1. And John the Baptist and the writers, Matthew and the writers, are wanting you to think this one who comes after you, he will saturate you. The Holy Spirit will hover over you and he will bring about new creation in you and through you. That just sounds so weird. I know. It does sound it, weird. It, it sounds weird. It, it sounds weird. But please, if you're listening to this, don't switch off because the more you hear this, the more it becomes normalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the spirit of God is he breathed life into earth, breathe, breathes life into you, and he breathed life into the Bible, as you said. It yes. weaved it through. Yes, correct. Yes. So we now have a world breathed by God. We have a Bible breathed by God. Breathed yep. by God, scriptures, and now that breath is within us. Yes, absolutely. And what does that do to us? Does it make us powerful? Uh, I think that could be dangerously used to say it makes <laughs> us powerful in the sense that if, because we have to have a good theology of power there, if we think power as in that gives us control, then we're starting to get into the realms of magic. And somehow that, and this is what ancient magicians and pagans believed that, that somehow if they had they, that they had certain magic spells or whatever they would they would be able to bend the divine God's will to theirs. That's not what John the Baptist is saying. That's not the idea. The idea is that that our will we would willingly choose to bend our will to the Father's. The opposite of that. Not that somehow I can divinely bend God's will to mine, but that I would choose. Not because God is a a slave driver who would impose his will upon us, but rather that we understand that our greatest desire, our greatest fruitfulness, our most fulfilling life is when we willingly bend our will 
to the fathers. And we allow that creative force of the father to come into us. So true power is actually found in giving up your power. That's the upside down kingdom of God. If you really want to be great for God, give up your rights for God. Because Jesus did that for us. Okay, and this the Holy Spirit here, it says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But how has the Holy Spirit appeared before in the Bible? Is it uh, is this the first time we're hearing of this? Or are people anointed with the Holy Spirit when they... Yep. The Holy Spirit, the, the theology of the understanding of the Holy Spirit is progressive throughout the Old Testament. But we see it right there in Genesis 1. The Spirit of God is hovering. And then they develop an understanding of what that means. But there's always this sense throughout the Bible that the, the, the Ruach, the Spirit, is the life force of God. Uh, that there, it's not that it's just a force. The Holy Spirit is more than a force. It is actually the personification of the Creator, and this the, the Yahweh, the Creator. But that it's a, an understanding. We don't get the concept that the Holy Spirit is one of the three parts, three persons of the Trinity until much later on. But there is this understanding throughout the Old Testament that the, the Spirit of God is, um, is, a, is a personal being, I suppose. And many times in the Old, Old Testament, there's this way it's written that the Spirit of God came upon uh-huh. this person. Yep. And then that, and we can read about it. I think we're discussing it in the next podcast. Sure. Uh, is they're able to do sort of certain tasks that yes. they couldn't do before. Yep. Bezalel and so on. So do I need the Holy Spirit in my life to be a Christian? Do I assume that I'm baptized in the Spirit when I become a Christian? Or is it something that I need to pray for or do? Or what is it? Okay, so there are different perspectives on different arms of the Christian church. As a Pentecostal church, official Pentecostal doctrine is that that there is a separate... uh, a separate experience that takes place separate from the salvation experience. So uh, salvation is being born by the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes and he breathes new life into us and we are born again. Uh, And then there is a a separate subsequent, can sometimes happen at the same time, but can sometimes be subsequent, a separate empowering of the Holy Spirit. So that's official Pentecostal or or charismatic doctrine. Others will believe that that, that's one and the same thing. At the moment you give your life to Christ and the Spirit of God breathes life into you, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there are valid arguments for both of those. Um, I, I would hold to a Pentecostal view, probably not as fiercely and dogmatically in the sense that maybe I was raised on as though, you know, unless you're baptised in the Holy Spirit, you, in some kind of earth-shattering moment, uh, that you're missing something. But I do, I do think there is potentially a way to look at it is, is in degrees of closeness to the Holy Spirit. We cannot come to life without the Holy Spirit doing a work in us. The Holy Spirit breathes new life into us. Unless you're born of the Spirit, John chapter 3, uh, in the famous, oh, there is, it's in our notes, it's being just, born again. Yep. It's right there in our notes. I was John just going to ask three. about this. Yeah, so yeah. unless we are born of the Spirit, then we, we do not see life. We do not see new life, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Uh, however, there is also a sense in which we should be wanting to grow in our intimacy with the Spirit and understand that there is an empowering of the Spirit for life that we should aspire to have. And whether or not that's a 
tangible experience. I believe it, I believe it is and it, it can be an empowering of the Holy Spirit upon us for godly mm. living that will often in, in, involve supernatural signs, wonders, miracles, power um, that, that do empower us for life the supernatural gifts of the spirit, if you like, that are referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which at some point we'll no doubt talk about in this, this theme about the spirit over the next few weeks. Um, so there is a, a sense in which we should desire more of the Holy Spirit to come and, and um, empower us. And I've heard it said that the Holy Spirit is, uh, it, it reveals the word of God to you mm-hmm. and makes you, helps you understand. And in John chapter 3, which is also one of the readings, um, We have Nicodemus, you know, a a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews and he comes to seek Jesus at night. But he hasn't understood what Jesus, hasn't understood his teachings. He doesn't get it. So can I understand that as saying the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed that to him Ah, at that moment? Yeah, I think that's probably what you could say. Uh, And there's the question that I would flow on from would be, why hasn't the Holy Spirit revealed that to him? Is that because God in somehow was um, hiding that from him? Uh, I would be more inclined to think that um, it was a limited understanding that perhaps he had placed on himself because of his teaching and his worldview, that he had no concept, um, that he needed more. He needed the Spirit of God. He needed to be born again. It seems like he had no concept of that. When Jesus talks about being born of the Spirit, he goes, what do you mean? How can I be born again? Like, yeah, surely I can't be born that. again. I can't fit back in my mother's womb. I'm a grown man now. That's what he's kind of saying. So there's this understanding there that, well, there's this sense of he had a lack of understanding. But I would also say there was something about his inquisitiveness that brought him to Jesus in the middle of the night. Um, he pushed through the cultural expectations that as a teacher of the law, that how would he, why would a teacher of a law even consider visiting this un, untrained rabbi? But there was something inside this man that was drawing him. I, yeah, I, I, I can see what you're spirit. saying there because it's a terrific conversation that they have here. Um, and if you, you've, hopefully you've read this at home, uh, John 3, part of the readings. But when Jesus says you have to be born again, uh, we see that we understand that to be something spiritual, yes. which he thought it to be physical. He, he thought it was physical at the time, yes. And so, is Jesus here pointing to what we were talking about before the, the, the separation that there is a spiritual world and then there is the human world? Yeah, I think he is. I think, I think he, is he is trying is. to explain that sin leads to death, which is an understanding in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see it in Genesis 1 on the day you eat of it, you will die. Mm. God said to them in Genesis chapter 3. The day you eat of it, you will die. This sense the sense that tree of death, tree of death in that sense, yes. tree of instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it actually became a tree of death. Tree of death. Well, actually, what happened was it didn't become a tree of death. What happened was that they were barred from eating of the tree of life. Yes, yes. Okay. But, that, and the opposite, the absence of life is death. Yes, and, and I just I'm only mentioning because I've heard it said that's the tree of death. Jesus is the tree of Calvary. There's the tree of Calvary, then there's the tree of life. But that's, again, I have, a yeah. segue. <laughs> yeah, well, there's definitely a whole doctrine about uh, trees in the Bible. Trees. Trees is there from beginning to end, including the cross. Mm-hmm. But I, um, something I didn't mention in Genesis 1 was that God created the world. It, it's logical. There's reasons and for his creation, there's reasons why. Everything seems to make sense. Mm-hmm. So God is this God of logic. Yet here Jesus is asking Nicodemus to think illogically and to believe being born again and see it as a spiritual thing. Yeah. 
So why am I suddenly why is suddenly God God of logic, but now God of other world leaders? I should have stated that before, but you I'm not it. totally. I want to be digging more into what what you mean and what are you thinking when you say God is a God of logic. Help me out a bit there. Well, oh dear, Ron. Now we're going to even go further down this rabbit hole. I mean, God is logic that He, you know, there is a beginning and, and an end. There is a dawn. There is a night. There uh, is order. There is order. Sorry, oh, order. Uh, That's a better order. word. Okay. Yeah, but order makes logical sense. Yes. I would also say that the being born of the spirit is an ordering thing. It's bringing life from death. That Jesus, what Jesus is wanting to do is reorder the world that was originally created because humanity has brought death upon itself through its poor choices. And so I think, even though it might sound illogical to say, how can you be born again? That was more to do with Nicodemus's trying to limit his understanding to a logical thing. I think what Jesus is trying to say is the most logical thing, if you look at it, is that humanity is born to, to die. Humanity is messed up. And if but you they didn't necessarily, uh, they would have lived that, but the way they played out or they lived out their religion, they thought that they could achieve um, being free of sin by, by committing their tasks, by their rules, yes. yeah, by going to the temple, yes. doing their purification yes. ceremonies and things. Yep. But Jesus is saying something different here. I think he is. I think he is saying that, um, he, I think innately he's appealing to this sense, maybe the sense that brought Nicodemus there in the first place, that there has to be more. There has to be more. All these rules and rituals and th that I think are supposed to make it for me, they're not. There has to be more. And he's, it's that desire that's led Nicodemus to Jesus in the middle of the night and Jesus is now recognizing that and going your desire really Nick is for is for order in your world you need to be born again you know there's more than those rituals and those rules and you know there's more than the death you see in the world the most logical thing is that the spirit of God the creator that you know from Genesis 1 that brought order out of chaos that's that's what that's who you need in your life if you want to really experience the fullness of what God has for you you need to be born again by that spirit and so I think it's I don't think it's an illogical thing I think deep down inside, there's a, there's, a, there's a logic about that. I see it. I think of it as a logical thing. I look at my life and think, man, I'm, I'm messed up without God. I need to be born again. I need the Spirit of God to empower me. I don't know if I'm confusing you. you. Oh, I'm always confused. That's just my <laughs> state of being. <laughs> I think what I was sort of trying to, to set up there was the idea that heaven doesn't make any sense to us and a lot and I the more I read Jesus I the more I see he's speaking of heavenly things things that I can't yes, see things okay. that don't make sense things that yeah. aren't a logical order yeah. he's asking me to, to suspend my belief and yeah. believe in this in something I can't see believe okay. have faith to believe what yeah. he says is true to have faith to believe that I need to be born again yep that there are things outside of my own existence that are important for me Yes. I think your key word there is to spend your own belief. I think I'd elaborate and say, I think there is a sense in which we need to suspend or at least limit and not rely upon the things that our natural senses tell us. In uh, our literal world. Our literal world. Yep. There's an innate sense that that's partly true, but not fully true. That's not the full expression of everything there is. Don't dismiss it completely. 
Christians, if you dismiss the natural world completely, they're the crazy Christians. They're the people who just have no useless earthly sense at all. They just live in there the cloud. There are crazy Christians. There are cr- plenty of crazy Christians and, and embarrassing Christians for that matter because <laughs> just we, we're not supposed to live in heaven. We're supposed to bring heaven to earth. So we shouldn't separate ourselves out from the natural world, from our relationships, from, from the people we, from the politics of this world, from soci- the sociological principles of this world. We shouldn't be the businesses, the schools, the things of this earth. We shouldn't limit, like dismiss them. So suspend your belief. I think I would say supersede those values with a higher value. Understand that we live in a fallen world and we live in the systems of this world and those systems are broken because of humanity's sin. But our job is not to just completely leave this world and dismiss them and move on and live in some kind of heavenly plane. That's not our mandate. This belief that uh, you, you, your ultimate goal is heaven that is a 17th century belief. It's not a first century belief. The first century belief is that our ultimate goal is to bring heaven to earth. They believed that. We've missed that somewhere. How do we do that? How do we bring heaven to earth? In relationship with the Spirit of God, through letting the Spirit of God breathe on us the truth about who Jesus is through the Scriptures, through prayer, through living in community with others, through desiring and being empowered by God's spirit to live out his kingdom values, love your neighbor as yourself, as I have loved you, so you should love one another, Um, to represent him on the earth. All of those things is how we bring the kingdom to earth. Live by his upside down kingdom values. You've heard that it was said, do not do do this. I say, go further. And if we, oh, sorry, go on. go, Go the extra mile. All of those Matthew 5, 6, 7, Sermon on the Mount stuff, that is... That is what it means to bring God's kingdom to earth. So if I love my neighbor, am I somehow making the world look like it was meant to be in Genesis 1? You know, that we're all in community, as you said. We love each other. We respect each other. And we're, by doing that, that sets us apart from the world around us. It sets us apart from the world around us. Yes, that's what's different. In a about holy us. sense. I don't mean yes. actual separation. Yep, in a holy yeah. sense. But in a sense that's not supposed to lead to us feeling better or more elite. It should, because that would be defeating the purpose of loving our neighbor. It should be so attractive to the world around us that this is a group of people who actually love others more than themselves, who actually prefer others over themselves, who live by the kingdom values that are different to the world's values that we see in the systems of this world, the, the backbiting and the slandering and the arguments and the, all of that sort of stuff. We live by a different set of values that should be attractive to the world. And that is how you and I as individual Christians can influence the world around us and how we as a pocket, a church community, whether we're Camden, Picton, Thoreau or any other church you come to that listen to this, that as a community, you can exist to be a little pocket of Eden on the earth. When you go out, when you leave this building today and you go, you go home, you are a little pocket of Eden. You, heaven is touched down on the earth in New Genie and then oh you bring dear. that. Yeah. It's, it's sobering, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That's it's why we need the Holy Spirit because it's you are Eden, you are heaven walking around interacting with the world around you when you so go to the shops after, after is this. Is that essentially what a Christian should be? Yeah. But we get it so wrong. We get it wrong. Don't we? We're we just, get it wrong. And that's another big conversation, I suppose. Yeah, we'll, we will come back to that concept of what that. that looks like multiple times throughout the year, I'm sure. Yeah. Yes. 
So I have no idea how long we've been talking, but I think we could. We, we have been talking for a while. I'm very concerned that you've got to go and get your kids from school. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I, we didn't even make it through. We haven't made it through all of them, have we? Uh, no. Just let me sum up. You see, this is our first time doing it. Yeah, here. yeah. Have, gra- have gr- grace and forgiveness and acceptance yeah. for us. I think Hang we'll get better guys. as we'll, we go we'll along. We'll get better. And we did start with yeah. Genesis 1, so it was always going to be challenging. That's right. I mean, I didn't even ha- get through half of my notes here. Uh, but this is a great thing that you are encouraging me to be a- to discuss the Bible. Yes. And I want to thank you for that opportunity because you sort of feel like you should just believe it and not ask any questions. Uh, that's that's um, not healthy. No, it's absolutely not healthy no. at all. Oh, look, should we just sum this up and go for it sum it up no hey we can always record another one and visit the rest if we want to we can do part one and part two if we get to it if you're listening to this and we've done a part two we've done a part yeah. two if not you'll see us you'll hear us next week in yes <laughs> <laughs> all right so shall we'll just end it there and let you get on with your day thanks so much for listening to us uh hopefully you can connect with us on um, an instagram page that we'll have and uh through facebook and we're also uh, really interested in having some of your questions so yeah. if we'll take any curly questions um and Jeannie will gladly answer them for I you will a- <laughs> <laughs> She'll ask them. Oh yes, yeah. They had. I have a lot of questions, Rowan. This is, uh, you do, Jenny. I, I do. love that. Yes. Okay. So thanks so much for listening. For, um, listening to us. So I hope this has been a blessing to you. It is just our random conversation. So you know, may it bless you. May yeah. God bless you this week. Thanks for listening, and take everyone. Take care. Yeah. God bless.